and it occurred to me I wanted to do something that would help diagnostically. So I came out from behind the desk, uh, just held his wrist, put it up in the air, and left it like that. Okay. Came back to my chair, sat down, and he continued to leave his arm up in the air. After about two or three minutes, I said to him, are you aware that your arm is up in the air? And he very quietly said, yes. Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a narrated article, case presentation, or interview or discussion with one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We're interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at orgonomy.org. The best way to help the American College of Orgonomy spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. If you're interested in training with the ACO, you can learn more about the medical orgone therapy or social orgonomy training programs. You can connect with us and learn more at orgonomy.org. The Journal of Ergonomy is now on Substack. Check out the link in the show notes to subscribe. Select articles from the journal will be available free of charge. This episode features the audio from one of the ACO case presentation series webinars. Dr. Phil Heller tells Dr. Susan Marcel about his 74-year-old patient who's feeling inferior, full of doubt, and isolated from others. Listen in to hear how Dr. Heller connected with his patient, hear what he saw in his symptoms and behaviors, and how the treatment resulted in a surprising response. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Marcel, and thank you for joining us today for the American College of Orgonomy, a different kind of psychiatry webinar. I am happy to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Phil Heller. Hello, Dr. Marcel. Good afternoon. Hi, Dr. Heller. Good to see you. So, um, Dr. Heller is going to be presenting a troubled 74-year-old man finally gets the right diagnosis. So, it's good to see you. I'm going to tell everybody about you. So, Dr. Heller is a board-certified psychiatrist, and he's a clinical associate of the American College of Orgonomy. He is in private practice in Colts Neck, New Jersey, and in general psychiatric practice in Princeton, New Jersey. Dr. Heller assists in a wide range of activities in support of the American College of Orgonomy and its training program. And he has authored articles for the Journal of Orgonomy. So, uh, so Dr. Heller, um, why did you decide to present this, this patient? Thanks for asking. I think this fellow shows a very good example of the difference between traditional psychiatrists and medical orgone therapists in terms of how they go about making a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So so how did this gentleman uh, come to find you and contact you? His wife actually called me as a result of reading a post I had online in the publication Psychology Today. Mm -hmm. 
I think it said something that the wife called and that he didn't. She was very pleasant. We had a brief conversation, uh, told her about myself. She told me about her husband, and we set an appointment. What was what was the complaint? What was the reason that the wife was describing that she didn't need help with? He had been under the treatment of psychiatrists for many decades, and I'll get into that later, okay. uh, but hadn't seen a psychiatrist for about three years, and his general practitioner, primary care doctor, had been prescribing him medication for about three years. She wanted to get uh, a psychiatrist on board to help her husband. And he was complaining at the time of feeling uh, very low about himself, thinking that he was inferior to everyone else, was having a lot of trouble making decisions, and was pretty much self-isolating in the house. Mm -hmm. Okay, that sounds serious. Um, so when when he first came in to see you, what what did he look like and what was your impression of him when you first met him? Well, my first impression was that I saw him with his wife at his request. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, for a 74-year-old, it's not unusual, but a little out of the ordinary. Uh but he looked to be uh, of normal size and shape, nothing tall, nothing short, a little bit pudgy. His eye contact was rather poor. His eyes were pointed at me, but I never got the impression that he was actually looking at me. Uh, did not He didn't give me the sense that he was really present in the room, but he was somehow distracted with something that I wasn't aware of. Hmm. Uh, his voice was rather soft, but he spoke very little. His face didn't move much. It was pretty much motionless. And his eyes looked very dull, as if they weren't quite alive, and almost gave the impression of being pulled back inside of his head. His breathing was rather shallow and minimal, and his chest didn't move much, even standing or sitting down in the chair. Uh, he generally appeared to be uh, showing a lack of movement, not only on his face, but his arms, legs, and generally uh, seemed pretty still. Almost sounds like he's frozen or, or just kind of stuck. Well, not quite. Yeah, mm -hmm. not quite, but I think that that's a good description of him at least uh, trying to thaw out from a frozen situation. But so, I imagine he was more frozen at home. So when did this gentleman start having problems like this? What's his history? Well, uh, there, there are two legs to this history, so to speak, or two, 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 uh, two paths. When he was about... I guess he must have been about 10 years old in the fourth grade. They had taken some kind of uh, IQ test and his teacher told him that he was somewhat limited. Why she said that, I have no idea. But it had a profound effect on this fellow that's lasted until this day. He still believes and feels that he's inferior and limited 
So it really got got to him and caused a lot of trouble. He did not seek psychiatric help until he was about 20, but in the interim, in his teenage years, had what was reported as six grand ball seizures. Wow. Uh, the, he, he described them uh, in detail pretty much, and they certainly sounded like grand mal seizures. Whether they were or they weren't, I don't know. Uh, he was evidently hospitalized briefly, started on some medication, uh, and he never had another seizure after oh. the age of 18. Never did. Oh. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, and it stopped that seizure medication about a year after he was seen. I did not and was not able to get any further info about that with prior medical records or a neurologist. Never saw another neurologist either. Very interesting. Did he have any other medical problems, Dr. Hill? Uh When he was young, no. He was a fairly healthy fellow uh, uh, medically, but did seek out psychiatric help when he was about 20 for similar problems that he's had now complaining that he felt inferior. That was the really crux of the matter. Uh, he was seen uh, by his report two or three times a week by a psychiatrist uh, for therapy and medication. He was treated with a number of different medications and actually uh, was given lithium for quite a number of years, but developed early stages of uh, problems with his kidneys, so that was stopped. And a lot of other medications were tried w without much benefit. So they were treating him as if he had a seizure disorder and then a mood disorder, is what you're describing. Yeah, with that's lithium. right. His okay. wife said there was some mention of the word dysthymia, but it was never really clear to me what officially the diagnosis of the treating doctors were. Uh, but after a number of years on uh, lithium and some other medications, and they were stopped, he was sent to a, a major university hospital in New York City and was observed there for about three days. Uh, they so came he, up, was a, he was an inpatient? They, they kept him as an inpatient? It's difficult to say. He didn't say he was an inpatient, but was an observation. Maybe they had a lot of appointments or something like that. Mm -hmm. But they came up uh, with two medications that they wanted to treat him with. I don't know what their diagnosis was. One of the medications was an anti-seizure medication, but is also used as a mood stabilizer. And the other one was an old-fashioned tricyclic antidepressant. And he has been on that for 20 or 30 years since. Oh, my he had seen a psychiatrist on Staten Island maybe once every couple of months, and, and that was it. So he how did you that? Oh, sorry. Well, how did this man function given that, I mean, he had these seizures, he's on all this medication, yeah. he has seen a bunch of doctors. I mean, I take it he's married, and like, what does he do for his work, and do they have children, and how did he function? Okay. Well, it's a good question to give you a sense of what his life has been like. Uh, he and his wife got married at a fairly young age, I think their early 20s. They have two grown children out of the house being productive, so they must have done a fairly good job with the kids. Uh, he worked for an insurance company uh, for many years. 
I think, in information technology or something like that. But they downsized in the 90s. And he got another job through a friend at the uh, uh, Metropolitan Transit Authority in New York City. And he worked there for about another 10 or 15 years and then retired, I guess, around maybe eight or nine years ago. But what's interesting about how he functions day to day is that he takes care of all the household bills, does a lot of the financial stuff for the family, but yet continues to always complain that he's intellectually inferior, which his wife sort of smiled when he said that. She said, he's not inferior. He knows what he's doing. But So there was a real disconnect between... Yeah. And how his wife saw him and how he saw himself. Yes. That's right. very, very confident actually. And and yet yeah. he didn't he didn't have a sense of that within himself. So um hmm. and he was also very persistent. You can he, I got the sense uh from the way his wife described him, not him, uh that you could always depend on this guy. If he promised he was gonna do something, he never forgot. Mm-hmm. He's very good with that. Uh, and that he was not a moody person, uh, didn't have unpredictable changes in mood, with the exception of maybe once a year, no more frequently, he would have these outbursts of anger and rage that would come out of nowhere, probably were provoked, but I don't know what the provocation was. Last, I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes, would scream and yell, wouldn't throw anything around, wouldn't hurt anybody, wouldn't hurt himself. And then for the next week or so, seemed a lot more outgoing and relaxed. Oh, how interesting. So yeah. it was like he burst out of something. What did he make of that? when He I, he shared this with you in the history, that, that first session, or second well, session. His wife really told me that. Uh-huh. It me a lot of the history, which might have been part of the reason that he wanted her to be there, because he has trouble speaking up. But what they really didn't make much of it other than, uh, well, it happens every now and again. Hmm. I don't think yeah. they tried to connect the dots in any way. Okay, so all this is you're getting this history all in the first session. That seems like yeah. a long time. So, yeah. so take take us through the first session and then maybe the second session and and sure. where it fold. Okay, so you know, going through all of this material with him, what he did for a living, his responsibilities, taking care of himself, mood issues, all of this stuff. He was telling me that you know most of the time he would stay to himself. When things got worse, he was self-isolating, had a lot of trouble making decisions, uh, would doubt everything and check and double-check things. Uh, But that would, the intensity of that would come and go. But every now and again, he he really gets stuck and gets stuck in the house. difficult to do much of anything. Clearly, he described himself... uh, in a way that made me have good reason to think he was introverted and not extroverted. Yeah, maybe could you, maybe for our audience, let like what's the difference between introverts and extroverts? Oh, what's your sense? Uh, the way I like to 
to find the difference is that an introvert, an introverted person tends to feel like their place of safety is when they're alone or with very few people. An extroverted person enjoys and feels most comfortable when they're out in the world with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you saw this gentleman as an introvert. I mean, the way he's describing his life, yeah. his wife describes. Okay. Right. Very quiet. He would say very little. Uh, tough for him to get moving, either vocally, emotionally, or physically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I saw him two times evaluatively sitting in a chair across from a desk from me, uh, uh, both times with his wife, because after the first session, it just didn't make sense to me. There was something wrong, something that I was missing that I couldn't quite put together. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about him so I'd have a better sense of what exactly is the problem here. Mm -hmm. So when he came in the second time, again, came in with his wife, and he presented in the same way, very quiet, almost frozen, having a lot of trouble moving or speaking. And it occurred to me I wanted to do something that would help diagnostically. So I came out from behind the desk, uh, just held his wrist, put it up in the air, and left it like that. Okay. Came back to my chair, sat down, and he continued to leave his arm up in the air. After about two or three minutes, I said to him, are you aware that your arm is up in the air? And he very quietly said, yes. But then I asked him, I said, so what's the reason your arm is still up in the air? I don't know. But he seemed a little more interested in terms of the, the volume of his voice and maybe some light in his eyes. And then I said to him, do you think it has something to do with you wanting to put your arm down, but something is getting in the way? Like you're having doubts about that? And... He almost smiled, but didn't. But there was some movement in his face, mm -hmm. a glimmer in his eye that made me feel that I'm connecting with this guy. I'm talking his language. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I said, you can put your arm down now. It's okay, which he did. We continued to talk a little bit and tried to clarify some of that prior history, uh, at which point... I discussed what I thought would be helpful for him, what I saw with him and his wife. And I said, you know, I think your husband and you have a problem with movement. You seem to really be, you get stuck physically and psychologically. You get psychologically stuck with doubt and fear and worry uh, and this very poor self-image that you keep playing the tape over and over with. And physically, it's tough for you to move around. So I think it would really be helpful if when you come here next week, if you'd like to, I'll have you lie down on the treatment couch 
and have you breathe and move around and see how you do. And they agreed to that. It seemed to make sense to them. There was an acknowledgement of what I said. Uh, and they came back in about a week. And when they showed up in the waiting room, I asked the wife if she could please wait in the waiting room, which she did, a little hesitant to not be with him. Uh, but he was... Well, so, his wife was hesitant to not be in the yeah, room? Yeah, yeah. What do you make of that? I'm not sure. I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to form any conclusions about yeah. that. But one could easily say, "Well, oh, boy, she's really his caretaker rather than his wife." Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he came in. We sat and just chatted for a few minutes. Just how are things going? General talk. And then I asked him, "I'd like you to lie down on the treatment couch now." Let's see what we can do to help you. And he did so, but he, he did so in a very cooperative way, the way, let's say, uh, a decent, healthy uh, eight-year-old boy would be very cooperative. A nice little boy doesn't object to anything that their fathers tell them to do, you know? So he lied there. He laid down on the couch, and I had him breathe, with his mouth and chest, rather than nose and stomach, in and out, opening his eyes, breathing in, closing his eyes, breathing out, which he did for a minute or two. And then I added to that by asking him to sigh a little bit on breathing out, which he did very cooperatively, move his face around, and I showed him an example of just moving my face and he did that too. And then uh, I asked him to see if he could kick, alternately with right and left legs, kicking. And he did so, but it seemed very mechanical, almost machine-like initially, and a little slow. So I asked him, pick up the pace a little, and let's see how hard you can kick. He did so, and it, it started to build a little bit more of a rhythm that was more fluid, less mechanical, and more more force to it also. And after about two or three minutes of doing that, he unexpectedly turned to me and smiled like this. Uh -huh. Like, wow, that felt good. It was totally unexpected. And how, did, how did you react to that? <laughs> I said, that's great. What's on your face? What's and he said, I'm smiling. And so he, was, he was aware that he was smiling. He, he could feel I, it. I asked him, yeah, yeah, I asked him, what's on your face? He said, I'm smiling. And I said, that's great. What was the last time that happened? And he said, hmm, I don't know, a long time ago. <laughs> wow. wow. I said, wonderful. Let's have you get up, have a seat, and we're going to ask your wife to come back in, which she did. And uh, she came in, and he was still smiling a bit. And she looked a little surprised, and I said, uh, what do you see? And she said, he's smiling. Right. <laughs> and I said, well, how unusual is that for him? And she said, very unusual. And I said, it's great. So I'm not the only person who's seeing this. You're seeing it, and he's feeling it. 
this is a really good example of what can happen if he just gets physically moving and reads a bit and, and is with somebody who speaks his language, like me. So they were both really taken by it. Uh, they seemed pretty impressed and happy. And I said, it's wonderful that he's responded this way. I'd like to continue to try to help him. This isn't a permanent fix, so to speak, but it's good evidence that this we're on the right track. So I'll see you in a week. Um, a week went by, and about a day before his appointment, he called up and canceled and said he can't make it, but we gave him another appointment for a week later. He came in, and as before, with the following appointments, I asked the wife, his wife to stay in the waiting room. He came in and sat down. He sat down on a treatment couch, actually, and was facing me. Then I said, so, how are you? I'm not doing too well. This isn't going well. And I said, tell me more. What's going on? She said, well, I felt pretty good for a few hours after I left here last time, but it went away. He said, okay, what came back? Well, I think I'm stupid. I'm having trouble making decisions. Not going out with my wife and taking walks as you, as you had suggested. I'm stuck again. Didn't say it that clearly, but that was the nub of what he was saying. And I said, well, let's have you lie down, which he did. And he kept on saying, I'm not feeling good. I'm not. And I said, tell me more about not feeling good. Is there more to it than that? So he sort of rattled off a number of complaints at that point. And they all seemed to be very negative. And, 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 and it felt like there was a large uh, amount of anger in his voice that I could detect. And I said to him, I want you to try to do something that might help. Can you say the word no and just get as loud as you want? So, like a good little boy, he did so. First, he just said, no, no. But then it got, I said, louder. You can get louder than that. Let's hear it. And he got progressively louder, and he started to shout, no. And as he did so, I said, who are you talking to? Because it wasn't clear to me that he was saying it to me or anybody else. And he turned to the side, and he looked at me, and he said, I'm saying it to myself. Oh, no. not bad. <laughs> and I said, no what? And he said, stop being so hard on me. Wow. So so just to circle back with his history, and, you know, the seizures as a, as a teenager, he's on medicines for years. He's seen many different psychiatrists over the, the years he was in treatment. And here you are just a couple of sessions. You know, and I think it like the traditional psychiatry versus medical organ therapy, the difference. And I, I think it, maybe you could describe that a little bit. For, for it's a good question to ask at this point in this interview. You know, the traditional psychiatrists tend to uh, stay pretty much on the surface in terms of symptoms and what they see. It's the basis of their diagnosis. With this guy, 
He was socially isolating, not moving around much. Probably his appetite was not too good, sleeping a lot, not saying much, which is a classic presentation of somebody who's depressed. And interwoven with this with these outbursts, maybe once a year of getting angry. And given that, it's easy to understand, although I don't know for a fact, that they're looking at this guy saying, oh, he must be uh, bipolar, manic depressive with these outbursts of rage and most of the time depressed. And they tried him on a lot of medication. So that being the way that a traditional psychiatrist would approach it, uh, before I get into describing how a medical organ therapist would approach it, the basis of what we do, one of the basis of what we do, is the emotional structure of people is layered. And there are three layers that we have identified, elucidated by Wilhelm Reich, Ellsworth Baker, Charles Konya, and Peter Christ in wonderful articles in our journal. The outermost layer, called the facade, is that behavior and attitude that's shown to the world that interacts with the world that's on the surface. And we all have a facade. Underneath the facade is a, is a layer that we've described as the secondary layer that contains all the, the scars and, and uh, difficulty that people have endured in their life anger, fear, sadness, terror, all of that is contained in there. And then even deeper beneath that is the core, the emotional core of a person, their, their basic nature, where healthy impulses come from. When you look at that structure, when a healthy impulse comes from the core, from their nature, it moves through that secondary layer and gets distorted or changed in a way that describes their characters, what we call their character structure, because that stuff reaches the surface in a distorted, unhealthy manner. That all being said, the way I uh, approached this fellow was not only to look at his current symptoms on the surface, such as sleeping, eating, all this stuff, all this very superficial stuff, it's important, but it only gives a piece of the picture. But I also had a sense of, did he make good eye contact with me? Right, right. It, did he feel present in the room or was he somewhere else? Uh, was he moving physically? What, what was he like? Did he show any emotion? And if he didn't, what appeared to be getting in the way? Was his jaw tight? You know, like this. Was his, well, his shoulders hunched as if he was trying to protect himself? Was he not moving? Has he, you know, maybe uh, doubting whether or not he can move or he can't move or frozen with fear? Uh, all of these things are important in putting together a picture 
of what the total emotional structure of a person is. There's one other thing that's very important too, is that a lot of people, including traditional psychiatrists, identify anxiety as a significant symptom. We all get anxious, all of us. There are only few exceptions to people who are never get anxious. I'll leave the psychopaths out of this. <laughs> there are two types. People who are dead or over-medicated don't feel anxious. All the rest of us, including me, get anxious. That's not where the problem is. The problem is, what do you do when you're anxious? Some people get quiet. Some people get loud. Some people get nasty. Some people have anxiety attacks where they feel as if the world is coming to an end. So all of that is an important part of the picture that needs to be observed and seen and taken into account. So, so with your patient, given his history, again, the seizures, all the medicines, yeah. the numerous psychiatrists, the outbursts of rage uh, yeah. once a year, I'm thinking about how traditional psychiatry sees him kind of one-dimensionally like a checklist, whereas you're describing a three-dimensional you know, the facade, the secondary layer, the core, it, even just in a, a couple of sessions, you saw all those layers you got. And I think he, he picked up on that. He sensed that you got him. Yes. Yeah. That's a very good observation on your part. I think you're right. Yeah. Which, which he responded to by the smile. I mean, I think that <laughs> says it all. Yeah. Um, but he couldn't, he couldn't sustain it. Yeah. So. Hmm. There's another piece to this that I'd like to elucidate on a little bit. Uh, this problem that he had with these outbursts of rage, maybe once a year, and the uh, the episodes when he was a teenager that have been identified as grand mal seizures. Yeah, how do you think they relate? Is there some yeah. connection? There's a condition in psychiatry known as catatonia. And... Uh, People who suffer from this can suffer from either a mild form of it or an extreme form of it. It can go anywhere from having difficulty making decisions and being ruled, your life being ruled with doubt and, uh, and uh, a poor self-image uh, and stuck to all the way at the other end of the spectrum, being literally frozen. I remember in training as a psychiatric resident, I saw a fellow, uh, an older gentleman, kind of scrawny old guy uh, that was posed like a statue outside. It was spring mm -hmm. cold and he didn't move. He actually looked like a statue and he was standing there for like three or four hours. And I saw him every day out there doing this. And one day somebody was out there making fun of him uh, and out of nowhere he just exploded into this rage and it took about a half dozen people to, to just contain him but this is a provocation that he heard and saw everything that was going on around him but he was frozen and this very well could have been what happened to this fellow when he was a teenager, and what's happened maybe on a yearly basis. 
There's a very, very good article in our journal uh, from the American College of Orgonomy written by Dr. Charles Konya in the, I think it was 1992, about comparing epileptic seizures and what is called catatonic furor, which is what I just described. Uh, and it's an excellent article if anybody wants to uh, look at that, they could contact the college and see if they can get a copy of that. But getting back to this, putting putting all this picture together, I think it's good for me to include that. It's a very important piece of the puzzle that made me think there's something wrong here that doesn't make sense. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I'm reminded of uh, two patients that I've taken care of uh, when I, I worked at the VA hospital uh, in Pennsylvania. And uh, we had a woman who would stand in the hallway with her arm up or any posture you put her in, and she would stand there for hours. And there was a very sad quality to her her face, and she wouldn't answer questions. She, I mean, she was very, very sick, much sicker, I think, than than your patient. Um, but you know, every day I would come around the same time, and and she would stand in her spot. So she got from her room to the spot. Uh, somehow she would move yeah. and, and just stand there all day. And, and you know, she was basically being kept there because she couldn't function uh, at her residence. And uh, there was a sadness to her. And I have always wondered what, and I didn't really know her history uh, in depth as much as you know this gentleman. But that same, there's so much more. I'm sure there was so much more to this woman than than was evident on the surface, but that the immobility was so striking. Yeah. So uh, I also I had another patient who uh, my been one of my first uh, residency rotations where I was assigned to take care of a woman who was brought in um, on on an involuntary commitment, and she um, but she was. Because she had been violent, she was in a fight. So, you know, I don't, I don't know the details of all that. But she came in. She's a very heavy set woman, and and wouldn't talk to us. And she every day would come out of her room and climb under the table in the uh, community room kitchen area and just sit there for hours and not move. And what became evident was she started like clucking like a turkey and and we realized like she was making some noises that sounded like a turkey so there i am the resident i'm trying to take care of her and i trying to interview her in, in a traditional way and it just was she wasn't responding and she would freeze she would just sit there immobilized and i sat with her for a long time every day just to just see what would happen you know it was just instinctive she wasn't going to do a traditional checklist interview how are you doing today and there was, I guess, maybe about a week into this, all of a sudden, one day, she just turns and looks at me and says, you know, doctor, you're crazy. <laughs> and then she went right back to being totally immobilized again. And and it was one of those moments where somehow me going there time after time and just sitting with her, uh, it yeah, I connected. Like, she saw me. She knew I was there. And she had a smile on her face. That's what made me think of her. Um, your gentleman had a smile. This woman had the smile. Like, you're crazy, doctor. <laughs> so there was some part of her wasn't crazy. She was whatever that means. You know, she 
she felt something. She knew I was there to try to help her. So um, she felt you. Yes. You connecting with her emotionally. That's a wonderful story. Yeah. 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 It was. It was one eye that really left an impression on me, although I don't know that I understood so young in my my training what it really was and how best to help her. Um, but but I intuitively knew to just go sit with her and yeah. just see what happened. And I think you did that with your gentleman, try the movement and see what happened. Yeah. And you got through to something, got through to his core. Um, that smile says it, so. Um, well, to sum up our discussion, before getting to questions, uh, I think that this case, the way we talked about it, is a good example that people have heard the difference in between the way a traditional psychiatrist would go about making a diagnosis and the way a medical hormone therapist would go about making a diagnosis. And the core of the difference, other than what I've elucidated uh, a few minutes ago, is emotionally get connected to the patient, speak their language, know that you're there with them and they feel understood in order to gain their cooperation so that you can then move into something therapeutic. Right. And you clearly did that with this gentleman. You know, you, you got him, you, you connected with him uh, on a deeper level. So, yeah. So, um, Dr. Heller, is there anything else uh, before we uh, look at our questions um, that maybe you want to add about your work with this patient? No, I think I just Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, we do have one question. Um, having the patient say no was one thing. Did you ever think it would be good to get him to connect more with his rage on the couch? And if he had been in therapy longer, would you have gone there? That's an excellent question. Um, I think he did uh, connect with his anger and a bit of rage when he was saying no. But it needs to be kept in mind not to go too deep too fast. Good point. Yes, yes. Sure, because, well, maybe imagine if you had done that, what might have happened with this gentleman? I think he would have progressively, under my guidance and driven by his health, had better and better contact connection with what he was feeling. Yep. Well, good. So, um, looking see, there's no more questions in the Q&A, but I guess I'm just wondering, is there anything else that you would like to leave our our uh, audience with before you know we close today. Yes. Hopefully, this uh, uh, interview and discussion of this patient will give hope to those people who are out there suffering emotionally and have tried numerous ways of getting relief. For them, it's very possible that medical orgone therapy might be a good place to look for help. Yeah, good. There, there actually was one more comment uh, for you, Dr. Heller, than, um, and actually for both of us. Have either of us dealt with older patients who might be stuck, uh, stuck in their ways? All the time. Yeah, I was going to say, yes, every <laughs> single week. 
Uh, there's another comment, um, a question. Uh, did this patient return for further sessions and then what happened? I'm waiting for him to get back to me. Yeah, yeah. So to be continued, right? That's right. Um, one of our uh, uh, audience members is saying, um, is medical organ therapy available in Europe? Yes, it is. And in order to find out about that, you can contact the American College of Orthotomy in Princeton. You know, I think the addresses and contact information are available both online and during the seminar, uh, the webinar, uh, I think they've been posted. Yes, yes. Great, great. So, well, um, there's no more questions. And Dr. Heller, I really want to thank you for the work you've done to uh, pull this together and, and present this patient and for your understanding of this gentleman. Um, kind of remarkable uh, what you've done. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And it was a pleasure talking about this. And hopefully, it will allow people to see that we really are a different kind of psychiatry. Yes, yes. How do you feel after listening to this patient's story? What do you think? After listening to Dr. Heller's discussion about how he approached and treated his patient, I was reminded just how grateful I am for this knowledge. The three layers of a person's emotional structure, an energetic definition of anxiety, and more have allowed me to connect with my patients and help many. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at Organomy.org. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. Since 1968, psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Organomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward often without the use of medication.